For October 19th, 2009, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 68. How are we going to find a supreme leader without a map? Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From rainy California, that's right, it rained moderately this week, so the whole city of Los Angeles was flooded for three days. Uh, I am your host, Matthew Rather, and it may be a short podcast because I have to write a paper tonight. Uh-huh. My God. Can you believe this? Can you believe I this? I said, I uh, like not only right, not only am I like 29 years young and I don't want to write a paper like I'm I'm too old for this this poop. Uh, Not only that, but also I go to trade school. I go to acting school. I don't go to like, you know, I don't know, a supremely intellectual PhD program of some kind. Why am I writing a paper? It uh, it remains to be seen. But that is not the question of the week. The question of the week, in honor of last night's Treehouse of Horror Simpsons episode, we're we're going to save our talk about the Simpsons for the actual twentieth anniversary, which I guess is uh, when is it, Matt? Is it in December? I believe so. Yeah. We'll save the the big Simpsons episode for then. And I guess we're going to push off listener feedback uh, another week. Uh, but but we watched Treehouse of Horror last night. And though uh, though the consensus was it was not uh, not super, um, we, uh, we want to ask, when was it super? What is your favorite uh, Treehouse of Horror vignette uh, sketch? Because they, they all have, what, three sketches, I guess. Uh, in them. So, uh, you know, throwing off the pattern tonight, I'm sorry about this, Pete, but uh, first and I'm so angry. I'm so angry. <laughs> Pete smash. Uh, first in the alphabet is Mr. Matthew Blinky from beautiful New York, New York. It's wonderful to have you on the show. Always good to be on, guys. Um, you know, man, the weather here is awful, Matt. The weather in Los Angeles is awful. It's like it's only like seventy-three or four right now, and it rained for fully six hours this week. Well, I I don't know I don't know what to say. Very tiny, tiny, uh, and soaked and cold violin yeah. in my hand. Uh, no, it's it's miserable here. I don't know why anyone would have settled here. Originally, it doesn't make any sense that this is that what they thought. Guy was a like, douchebag. Like they're like, this is what they thought was the best they could do. Did they not understand that if they went south, things would be better? That like after the first winter, were they not like, well, we need to go further south where it's warmer, and so we don't die because uh, people are not supposed to live there. There you know, were there were beaver pelts. I guess Blinky, there I were know. lots of beaver pelts up here in the in the island of Manhattan. Is that a euphemism for something, or are you talking about literal beaver pelts? No, I'm talking about you know the trade and the furs and the trapping and whatnot. You know gotcha. the trapping of the beavers. <clears throat> I still moving, feel like it's a euphemism, even though, even though you're claiming it's not. Um, my favorite uh, Trails of Horror segment from way back from the very uh, third one they did, uh, Dial Z for Zombie, was their big uh, zombie episode uh really good it's it's one of these things where like there's so many memorable lines in it um you know i think i think my my favorite is um you know homer homer blows away uh flanders after he tries to attack them and bart in just shock is like you know dad you killed the zombie flanders and homer's like oh he was a zombie 
Which is like, it's such a, it's such a, like an almost an old joke. I'm sure it's been used in a million things, but like I'll always think of it as being from that episode. Um, and actually, if you go back through the archives of the blog, I actually wrote an article last Halloween about how I think the sort of cliche that zombies walk around moaning brains, brains trying to eat brains, is largely from that particular Simpsons sketch. Which sounds crazy, but like, have you ever actually seen a movie in which zombies say brains, brains? Like, no, nobody has. I mean, like, if you want to find one, it's um, Return of the Living Dead, I think, which is sort of like an obscure mm. '80s film. But like, it's really that Simpsons episode where they where they they have that stereotypical behavior, and I feel like it's sort of been internalized as something that's that comedy zombies do well because i brought this up in an email right matt uh when we were talking about it on the back channel this week about yeah. like zombies don't have the tools to open a human skull often yeah. they're not smart enough like and i i just speculated that they're like sea otters and they must hold people's heads on their tummies and hit them with rocks like they were they were clams <laughs> to try to yeah. open them up and dish out the because otherwise how are they going to get to the brains mostly they just eat neck but uh, yeah, I mean, in, in a way, I feel like like that's part of the poignancy of zombies—the fact that they can't get brains. They're simply not smart enough, and they're not equipped to get the brains. So they sort of like have this. It's like a. It's a like a. a, 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 a is it closer to Sisyphus or closer to Tantalus? <laughs> well, it's probably closer to Tantalus because every time they, well, yeah, because they can't get what they want. Sisyphus would be like they work really hard, they think they're accomplishing it, and then they get sent back to square one. So I think I mean, it's closer. I feel like they that's just... how they feel. They do get a sense of satisfaction after they like bring somebody down, and I feel like there's a moment. They usually cut away before the moment of frustration when they're like, you know what, this is pointless. Mm-hmm. Like we pretty much just have to wait for for the brains to liquefy and drip out of the ears. That's, it's sort of like when you buy a master lock. You guys ever notice that when you buy like a master lock, how it's impossible to open the packaging? Like totally impossible to open the packaging for a master lock. And Is I that more steady and irony or real irony? Yeah, exactly. I think that's fake iron. I think it's on purpose. I think it's totally on purpose. They're trying to show you how well they lock things. It's really hard to get their product no, out of the a, Jeep. Well, that shell packaging is a whole is a whole category of packaging. Like a lot of things at Costco come with that. And like, so not only is it impossible to open, but like when you do get your box cutter, or oh god, you can't call them box cutter since 9-11 what are they called utility knife when you do get your utility <laughs> knife into the uh right into the plastic which you know j- takes jabbing you inevitably pull on it and like cut yourself on your utility knife and then you cut yourself again on the jagged edges of that hard plastic but uh hey uh I a song about your band yeah. <laughs> about how you cut yourself on the jagged edges of the plastic case for your costco thing actually that was the name of that was the name of alanis morissette's uh, first album it was called jagged little edge of your costco package <laughs> I can see why it wasn't as successful. That is, you see, like he, this man resents Belinky so much that he's horning in on his uh, on his, <laughs> on his intro sorry, segment. No, I thought because I thought this was Pete's time. Now I thought we he's moved, used to we being up first. It is from his basement with his brand new computer, which does not seem to work. It is Peter Hall. If I do drop off during the podcast, I apologize. I'm having issues with technology, which I hate. Stupid technology. Um, sorry, now it's gonna get mad at me and kick me out. Are you guys no, there? You're, you're, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you guys got all quiet. I thought I got boot off the call again. No, I thought it was a uh, bit. I thought it was shtick. <laughs> no, it's always shtick. Life is one big shtick, I'm sure. I think there's a branch of 
philosophy that's based around that concept. Um, so my favorite has got to be, and I don't watch a lot of Simpsons. I am probably the most junior Simpson watcher on the group, but I'm a big fan of uh, leaning way too hard on the Raven um, <laughs> as yeah. like a piece of major literary achievement. Um, and, and so I I've, am charmed by the Raven segment of the very first Treehouse of Horror, um, Quote the Raven where, which shirt. is much like all other hammed up, overdone Raven treatments, like the most famous being Vincent Price's famous Raven treatment, where it's like, isn't this poem very scary that's about a bird? And like, actually, like, the horror in the Raven is an existential horror. It's not like a, a horror that most people will really identify with. Um, and people, and what, I, you, what would you say to my contention that the form of the Raven really undercuts the existential horror of the Raven? <laughs> I would say that's like, a very good point, because it's very sing-songy, and it's a very orderly poem in which exactly. everything makes sense, and everything has an explanation. And the Raven is saying, never more but he always says it like in order to rhyme with something else so there's always the implication yeah, floor that like or door yeah. really that's yeah. it or you so, know. You're, yeah. so you're saying anything that rhymes can't be scary because rhyme is reassuring on some like prime primeval level I think I think that if the reason that it's supposed to be scary is because it, it it implies meaninglessness, rhyme does bring meaning. So yeah, that would be kind of a problem. That's a, that's probably something I would sort of it represents, it represents at least a um, <laughs> it represents at least a, like the possibility of human effort to stave off the horror by the clever <laughs> arrangement of words. Yeah, like it's like you better not look into the abyss because if somebody says something that rhymes with abyss, it might look into you. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> it will go amiss. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> and you'll you have to give it a kiss to look in the abyss for yeah. each other. <laughs> Pete, I'm, uh, I'm suddenly reminded of something you once said about the Joker, which is that uh, for an agent of chaos, he's extremely well organized. Yeah, <laughs> I guess that's how I feel about that. Like for a poem about like the, the gaping maw of badness, it's yeah. like extremely, uh, <laughs> extremely well organized. That's hey Pete. What, what do you think of this? Uh, uh, Pete and I at, at school both had a professor named John Hollander, who is a uh, like a giant in the study of English literature. One of the editors of the Oxford Anthology of English Literature. Invented hollandaise sauce. Invented hollandaise. sauce. All, all kinds of things it is remarkably not actually from Holland. Um, <laughs> but, uh, 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 Professor Hollander said once in class when I was there, uh, Pete and I never had him at the same time, but um, said <laughs> said uh, 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 Edgar Allan Poe is the worst important writer in American literature. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, would you buy that, Pete? Oh. <laughs> oh, never more. Quote the Fenzel, never more. We, yeah, quote the Fenzel, never more. I guess we'll never know. We'll never uh, know. That's what okay. You... We got more of our thinkers. We <laughs> keep on that oh, gap. Never it. more. He <laughs> <laughs> uh, got you. Yes, this yeah. in this podcast we uh, <laughs> in this podcast we will repeatedly. It will just be about getting Pete on the phone. All right, moving along. Mark Lee, you've been sitting there not saying very much. It felt like a long time with uh, you know someone else in the, in the order uh, besides Fendel, besides Fendel coming before me. Thanks for making me feel so welcome. Because, yeah. uh, are, are you doing a denial of service attack on my computer, Mark? As like revenge for me, like hoarding it. Uh, I gotta say, Matt, like the, I think the line for a poem about the gaping maw of madness, right? Like that line alone it's is extremely formulaic. Yeah, that makes it, no, no, no. I'm saying like that makes me want to uh, that makes me want to have you every week. Why can't you come on oh, every geez. week? 
Thanks. Uh, but, but now I'm just going to say that every week and it's going to get like less and less apropos. It'll be your, it'll be your trademark line. Yeah. All right, Mark, what's yours? What's okay. Yours like? uh, I'll make this quick. I, I like Fenzel. I'm not like the biggest Simpson watcher, Simpsons watcher either, but I do have one that really stands out in my memory of tree houses of horror. It's number six. It's the one where Homer goes into the real world. I'm pretty sure you all remember this. Uh, um, because it's because so, it's so jarring, right? I mean, there's a 3D rendered sequence, and this is back in 19, 1995. You know, you know, the, the, the animation technology is not so sophisticated then. But to my knowledge, I think there is a uh, you know the 3D 3D computer sequence. He's kind of like in a in a Tronish type of environment. Then he actually goes into the real world. Correct. <laughs> Yeah, like you know, like the you know, there's like a guy in a Homer costume and he's walking around, you know, on on, a, on an actual street. I don't um, think it's a Homer. I think it's the like 3D animated it's, Homer that they've composited into an actual street. Was it that? I, I really can't remember, but I mean, just the overall effect of it, right? It's it's, it's so jarring. Um, but anytime I think my, my favorite part of that episode is is how they ended. It's probably like my favorite, my favorite, the best way they could have possibly ended. Do you remember? I don't remember, did. actually. If you could refresh my memory, that would be good. Is that, like, he's in the real world, and you know that they were sitting in the room thinking of, like, how they should end this. And, and literally the sum total of his experience in the real world is he sort of walks down the street doing his sort of Homer sort of, like, whimpering to himself at, and, like, sort of horror at everyone. And the people on the street sort of look at him weird because he's a computer-generated character. And then he walks up to an erotic bakery and says to himself, Mmm, erotic cakes, and walks inside. <laughs> and that's the end of the episode. <laughs> and it's like I'd love to see like the the ledger with the with the ide- with the ideas of like what Homer should do to end the episode, and then like you know circle the like bright red pen you know finds erotic cake store. I guess they don't have them in Springfield. Their their economy doesn't support uh, erotic cake manufacturers. I suppose it's interesting to think about like what we have in the real world that Springfield doesn't. Um, I mean, it's pretty. You know, I don't know. There's plenty of other avenues of junk food. Is there not in, in, in Springfield? That's the thing, right? There's a Homer, a presumably where the rest of the spins off to, that Homer winds his way back into Springfield and opens up his own erotic cake store, you know, really, you know, exploits that niche in the market, which previously did not exist. Well, that is fan fiction waiting to happen. It's not fiction. Uh, the, the erotic Simpsons is happening in real life right now. Marge Simpson's on the cl- cover of Playboy. Oh, it's Wait, true. It's are you true. serious? I am serious. Yeah, yeah. Like right now? Right now. Right, hold on a second. I'm Here's the thing this. I want to know oh, about Marge. Right. What I want to know about Marge is do the uh, do the curtains match the uh, match the carpet, or do, does the rug does the carpet match the drapes? What? How does that thing go? <laughs> what color is her pubic hair? That's what you want to know. You mean? Is it blue? <laughs> you know, I never thought that Marge Simpson would beat uh, Lewis Griffin to the cover of Playboy. How, uh, so, um... Lois is more of a hustler character. Wow, that's... Don't let Peter hear you saying that. Actually, be proud of that. Hey, uh, so that's Josh McNeil. I realized I went out of order by, um... I, L comes uh, before him. It's cool. Yeah, L, L... Oh, no, right, yeah, good point. Oh, there you go. Uh, it's Josh McNeil. Hey, glad to have you on the hey. show. You were, yeah, glad to be here. To have you on the thing. You, I, I voted for your, uh, I voted for your contribution to the last think tank. Oh, much appreciated. On overthinkingit.com, the the best fictional food. Which I gotta say, I was not super involved in in the uh, in the editorial of that, and it just 
that it blew me away with its high quality the, of the concept and of the and of the execution. So to uh, oh, who did write in? Andre Schechner, uh, you Belinky, John Parrish wrote one, right? Um, and Lee, yeah, all you guys. It was they, they were fantastic. Did it make you hungry? That's what I want to know. No, I like <laughs> seeing the picture of Gach there. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> made me not uh, made me not want to eat. Excellent but, pronunciation of the Klingon, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> do you? Well, I am in acting school. We do work on dialects. <laughs> do you? Um, do you have a favorite Treehouse of Horror, Josh? I do. It's the uh, the sort of I believe it's called Clown Without Pity, and it's a uh, it's a crusty doll that uh, is evil yes. and attempting to kill Homer. Uh, sort of, you know, like a takeoff on the old Twilight Zone episode with Talkie Tina, um, which I remember seeing when I was like four and scared the hell out of me. And like all the Child's Play movies. Um, but the it turns out at the end that the doll has a they call out a repairman and the repairman comes and realizes that the doll has a switch that is switched to evil setting, um, <laughs> which I feel like every toy should have. Um, you know, so I was, I'd love, love to have a speak and spell set to evil and just see where that went. <laughs> can make you speak and spell some horrible things. Yes. Just, the, the, the thing I'll always remember for that episode is like, take this object, but beware, it carries a terrible curse. Ooh, that's bad. But it comes with a free frogurt. I don't know. <laughs> that was, I thought that was hilarious when I was like 12 or however old I was then. It was the Simpsons' third season, you know, um, just after it had gone to talkies. (laughs) Speaking of creepy toys, uh, I bet a lot of uh, listeners of this podcast are also Jonathan Colton fans, so they should definitely check out Jonathan Colton's creepy doll song, which speaks to... Don't do it. It will be stuck in your head for days. (laughs) Days and days. Yeah, or for the rest of your life, truly. Yeah. That really applies to any Jonathan Colton song. Here's mine. Mine is from Treehouse of Horror 8. It is, uh, I, I'm going to read it out of the Wikipedia entry because it, I, I fear that my explanation may not do it justice. So uh, it's not actually one of the segments. It's the opening to Treehouse of Horror 8, and it begins thus. A fox censor named Fox Censor sitting at his desk, reading through the script and deleting things, proudly announces that thanks to his editing, tonight's Simpsons episode is rated TVG. And uh, the TVG icon, rating icon, appears in the corner of the screen. But while he's talking, a hand with a sword grows out of the on-screen rating box and stabs him in the back repeatedly as he bleeds and screams. And each time... uh, each time the hand stabs, the rating goes up to PG, to 14, to MA, to 21, to 666. And uh, as he collapses dead onto the desk, his blood pours down the front of the desk to reveal the title, The Simpsons Halloween Special, uh, number eight. I guess they hadn't fixed on Treehouse of Horror as that uh, as the name of those. Anyway, that that was my... That that's my favorite, really. My it's probably a bad sign that like all of us are naming segments that occurred within the first ten years of its of its twenty year run. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. 
<laughs> Moving along, we're in a bit of a quandary here, having lost Pete, because he had one of the major topics for tonight. But let's launch into, actually, speaking of, of 3D Homer, let's launch into what was going to be our second topic, uh, 3D movies. It seems like it's a trend that uh, a lot of movies are uh, being shot and being exhibited in 3D, including the 3D re-release this weekend uh, of Toy Story, or if not this weekend, then very recently, of uh, Pixar's Toy Story. Now, it seems, it seems not easy, but it seems like, well, that's a good candidate, because when they rendered that movie, right, it was all from 3D models anyway, so it, it seems like uh, you probably could... You just add another camera, right, in your 3D program, and, and there you have it. Um, now, there are a lot of reasons for this. One of them is that uh, exhibitors want something that our increasingly elaborate home theaters can't compete with. Uh, the glasses make it very difficult. The necessity for glasses make it very difficult to pirate a 3D movie. So it cuts down on on people videotaping the movie in theaters, which is a you know still a big source of of uh, of piracy. And it's something don't you, just you need know. Two people. Don't you need what? Just two people videotaping. Am I wrong on this? I don't understand. <laughs> from either, from either side. And uh, well, but I mean, I think one of the one of the issues which we're gonna probably run up against more and more in the coming years is that it's it's a little awkward to watch a 3D movie on DVD because it's very clear that there are certain shots that would have been awesome if you had 3D. Um, and I'm sorry, I don't I don't mean to, to have this conversation backwards. But, you know, 3D TV doesn't exist yet. You know, I'm sure that one day we're all going to shell out for it, but I wouldn't hold your breath for it. And it's like, do these movies, these movies which were very conceived for 3D, sort of like lose something? And, and you're, you're very aware that um, this is not how you're supposed to watch it when you watch it at home, even on like a gorgeous flat screen. Well, do you have an example of that? I mean, I feel like I've seen, you know, several 3D movies recently. Um, Pixar's up, for example, but um, I have. I, 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 I don't have. A, I don't have the two to compare. I saw right? um, My Bloody Valentine 3D, uh, not in 3D uh, on DVD. Uh, first of all, a surprisingly good movie. I mean, like not. It's not genius, but like if you're looking for like a fun slasher film, it does feature a scene in which like a completely naked woman runs through like a parking lot being chased by like a pickaxe wielding murderer and they really like uh, milk every second of nudity they can before they got like the X rating you know? So I mean it's it's a hard R slasher film, a lot of fun but they really do love these shots where somebody will throw the pickaxe and it'll fly out or somebody will like thrust the pickaxe directly you know? I mean like they... They clearly uh, work to find situations in which they can um, use these, like you know, three D perspective shots, um, and they're they're fine. It's like if I didn't know that the movie was in three D originally, I might not think much of it. But it just sort of became like in the back of my mind during these scenes, which are supposed to be scary. I was just thinking like, oh, that probably looked great in three D. That probably looked great in three D. I mean, I a similar movie, example you know, should should be able to stand on its own without the gimmickry. Essentially, what that is. I mean, obviously, it's a horror, horror film. It's a slasher film meant to be exploitative, uh, but it speaks to something that's lacking in the movie. If it, it does not translate to being able to watch and enjoy it in three D, in two D, in that opinion. 
don't know. I mean, it's 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 not even that it doesn't really work on um. I mean, like, look, we all grew up watching pen and scan movies, you know, movies that were shot to be widescreen and were cut down to, like, you know, two-thirds the width that they're supposed to be. In some cases, even more. I mean, because some movies are, are very wide and they, they take pretty much, you're only seeing half the film when they when they cut it down for a 4-3 television picture. Yeah, now, right, nowadays, right. We're, yeah. you know, and, and I don't think that we were even really aware at the time that we were missing anything. You know, you know but, what? But I, I mean, I mean, little trivia, little trivia fact. The first video release that was all letterboxed was um, uh, Steven Spielberg's The Color Purple. And they, they put a, a title card before it saying, there's nothing wrong with your television. We're doing this to show you the whole frame. And, like, ex- explaining why there were black bars at the top and bottom of the screen. And... Um, and uh, it still was like the most returned VHS cassette of all time up to that point, just because people <laughs> were not – they were not willing to uh, – they, they would brook no black bars. They wanted the picture to fill their whole television. We, we deal with it now even with 16 by 9 TVs. I mean 16 by 9 is, is what? One point uh, – well, not quite what a not quite what a, a movie is, which is one point six six a lot of the time, or two point three five yeah. or even two point eight five uh, aspect ratio in a lot of in a lot of them. Um, is it but, like okay, the better but, 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 the movie yeah, sorry, is? We, the is. I, <laughs> right, the more expensive. <laughs> the, yeah. uh, the movie is and actually this this belongs I, re- I realize I realize I hijacked your point in the middle of, of the the first part and that there's a whole second part coming to this but widescreen was developed widescreen processes like CinemaScope no one uses exactly CinemaScope anymore but anamorphic processes like that were developed uh, after the advent of television right the- right I mean if you go back and watch uh, Gone with the Wind or The Wizard of Oz they're all 4-3 you know that was the shape yeah, and it was. I think it's called the you know cinema became the, wider to give people something that they couldn't get from their TV. Exactly, and this I think that this is what's happening. It was it was called the Academy Ratio, right? Like one three three to one uh, or yeah. four four to three. Yeah, and the um, uh, and so there are actually movies that like ha- that have that kind of square old television uh, old television shape, and if you see them in a widescreen shape, you're not really seeing. That you're not really seeing that movie, but yeah, so so widescreen like, and then so then there were a, a ton of westerns that got shot widescreen, and it was really it was all about the the like the line of the horizon across that wide frame, and that was the like the characteristic shot of the western with the you know the hero on his horse set against that, and th- you know and things like this, and so it it really informed the uh, the the way some of these iconic movies were shot that it that they were trying to. Um, trying to distinguish it by television. Now, complicating this is the fact that a frame of 35-millimeter film is actually more square than rectangular, and so the shape of the movie is produced by masking, just cutting out uh, the top and bottom of the frame. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that, actually, if you see a movie in a bad theater, sometimes you'll see the boom in shots because they don't... because the theater doesn't mask the... Uh, the image down enough onto the screen and shows you too much. Uh, too right, because you're not supposed to see that part. Yeah, exa- exactly. So that there is information on that frame that you're that you're not supposed to see. Anyway, but you were going to you were make, making a part a point. I believe it was beginning just as we all grew up with films that were panned and scanned. So also. 
I, I guess I'm just saying that it doesn't matter whether or not the movie holds up without the 3D. I guess it just sort of bothers me that they're making a bunch of movies now that like we don't have the ability to enjoy at home in remotely the same way that they were that they're supposed to be enjoyed. That's that's the point though, Matt. They want you to uh, I mean they want you to have I to suppose. go to that theater and pay, you know, 12 bucks now for your ticket and buy a $8 popcorn and, you know, a $7 soda. Oh, apropos of nothing whatsoever, a fly just flew into my beer. Oh, that is uh I mean Do you, Are you drinking and podcasting? I always drink and podcast. You never, like, for the last several dozen episodes, you have not heard me. You have not heard me without a drink in my a drink in my hand, and I know that goes for for several of the other podcasters also. Hey, Josh, you were going to chime in uh, a little while ago with another movie that you saw uh, that was um, supposed to be in 3D, but but wasn't when you saw it. Uh- I saw the remarkably poor Journey to the Center of the Earth uh, oh. while, while heavily medicated and horribly <laughs> ill. Um, and so so like, I, was, I was pretty high on uh, various drugs and, and still just the, the 3D effects. That movie was written in such a way that any time a normal movie would have character development or plot momentum, instead they had a fancy 3D shot. Um, <laughs> they had rocks and, and it, flying I mean, at the it, camera. It became sort of, I mean, it's, if you, you know, want to get drunk with your friends and make fun of a movie, that's a really good choice. Um, it's just, it's well, horrific. You were not drunk. You were, you were high on, let's just make, you have a reputation maintained, right? Like, uh, you were high on uh, prescription. Dayquil, I believe that's what it was. Oh, does Dayquil get you high? I thought Dayquil makes you. You take enough of it. it, it it'll, uh, it'll, you know, it'll at least make the pretty colors in the movie a little more interesting. I remember we saw Matt. You and I went to see um, "Kiss Me, Kate" the movie. Yes, you know, like I, which was actually shot in 3D back in the '60s, and it was square. It was in in uh, Academy ratio. I I seem to recall, and it was that we saw it at like Film Forum or the Angelica or something like that, right? Yeah, uh, you could you could actually see Bob Fosse dancing back before he was a choreographer, or when he was a dancing choreographer. Uh... Oh, here's what I remember about that. They about that movie. They used the singing in the rain trick, where it's it, they didn't find a way to fit a number into the movie, and so they inserted the. I mean, the the joke was that they're making a movie about the play about doing the play, you right? Know? And so they they couldn't find a way to insert one of the songs into the movie, and so they have the actors try it at the beginning, and you have the producers sitting there, and after they do this whole elaborate production number, the you you know pan over to the producer, and he's like, yeah, no, I, I just don't see a way to work that into the film, <laughs> which is the singing in the rain joke, where like after the big gotta dance sequence, you come back to the studio, he's and like, studio. I don't really see it. Yeah, I don't see it. I'll, you guys will have to do it. <laughs> I don't hey, hey, singing in the rain. That's a good movie. That would, that's a movie that would be good in three. Come on, where's the where's the re, where's the remix of that one? I'm sure no, somebody's so pitched it. I'm sure somebody's working on it. Well, that, I mean, yeah, I mean, like, look, the make him laugh number, the Donald O'Connor number with the like the you know the plank spinning around and he gets hit by it. That, that would be great. The whole thing really coming joking, over yeah. coming over the couch and the good morning, good morning number would be awesome. A lot of stuff would be awesome about singing in the rain in 3D. Yeah. I feel like the next step for 3D, so it seems like kids' movies is it right now, but uh, superhero movies are going to go that way. Well, not, then, uh, only, not only that, but I think the first big up is going to be Avatar, 
which is coming at the end of this year. Yeah. December I mean, I would say, like, like Cameron has, has been working on this proprietary technology for years, you know? So, I mean, this is supposed to be... 3D is the whole point of this movie. Um, I mean, like, you know, he it's not going to be available in 2D. He would be horrified at the idea that anyone would see this in any way but 3D. You know, it's it's almost about the technology. Um, and, right, and, and then does, to that... To that point, when the um, there's like an Avatar sneak preview, uh, maybe a couple of months ago, where they you know had like a, a five minute clip of the movie, which you go you know people would go to the movie theater and get the glasses and watch it in 3D. But they also released it online, and I can't remember if we talked about this on the website or on the on the podcast. But it looked pretty flat. It looked like a like a kind of a cruddy video game actually. Um, when you saw it, just saw it straight up on your computer, mm. but people who saw it in the theater with the glasses are like, oh, this is amazing. This is a total game changer that Cameron's been telling us all about. Yeah. Is it, do we know problem. anything about the, about the technology of this? Is it polarization? Like, are, are the lights, the light is polarized, you know, one side is polarized orthogonal to the other side, and your, your glasses I, are... I think so. And Blinky, when you say proprietary technology, you're not referring to, like, the, the, the 3D... The glasses and the the way that the 3D is presented. Are you? I, mean, or- I was under the impression that, that there was a lot of research and development that went into Avatar specifically, and that James Cameron has been obviously a lot of what he's been doing over the past wow, like 12 or 13 years since he did Titanic is sort of like playing around with like you know digital cameras, and I think he sort of spearheaded a lot of the development of this like digital 3D thing. You know, I mean, he's always a tinker. I mean, he was the one who did T2, which was like so far beyond beyond what anyone had done before with, you know, 3D technology, you know, computer-generated stuff. So, um, I mean, I, I do think Avatar is supposed to be kind of head and shoulders beyond, let's say, uh, My Bloody Valentine 3D. <laughs> but it remains to be seen. But uh, you, it's a giant video game right now. But, I but, hope to be proven wrong when I go to see it. <laughs> Bill, here, here's, the, here's the crux of the thing and, like, why I wanted to talk about 3D um, tonight i don't particularly enjoy 3d movies i find it that it sort of makes it 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 takes me out of the movie and that like i'm so distracted by the 3d that you you know like if i had the choice of watching a movie in 2d and like putting on the glasses and watching in 3d i'd rather watch in 2d is that does that make you unique or no i'm with you but i have a kind of a very practical mundane reason for that is i think the glasses are uncomfortable i mean mean, I i think that's part of it i think that i just like the thing is, like, it's hard to follow, especially if the movie's good. I mean, if you're watching Journey to the Center of the Earth, you might as well watch it in 3D because it's all about the eye candy. But, like, if if they had a version of The Dark Knight that was in 3D, which I don't believe they did, I wouldn't really want to see it because I'd be sort of, like, so distracted by the 3D. I don't think I'd enjoy Heath Ledger. No, they had – The Dark Knight had some IMAX footage in it, but uh, Harry Potter right. and the Half-Blood Prince had 25 minutes of 3D if you saw it in IMAX. See, and I think that's the worst, is just doing part of it in 3D. You know, it's it's calling so much attention to the 3D that, like, and, and that's attention that you're taking off of, like, building a story and, like, you know, uh, characters that are worth caring about. And it just it makes it all about the technology. Um, and, I mean, it's, it's not just I, – I actually took my four-year-old to see uh, Toy Story in 3D just today. And um, he took off the glasses um, pretty early on and watched the whole thing. And it, and it looked 
it looks blurry without the glasses. And he he chose to sort of watch it uh, looking sort of blurry and weird, then keep the glasses on because he thought it was just sort of a did weird. They I don't, I don't, size, did they have four year old size glasses or were? No, they I think that's just... part of it is that it was like one size fits all glasses. Oh, and it didn't that's terrible well. for a kids movie. Um, you have to have kids. But I also glasses. think it's just it's just weird if you haven't seen many movies that like it's just a little too strange and it's not how you're used to watching things like on TV. And I think that like and I I wish that the Toy Story had been available in 2D. I would have taken him to see that. And I feel like more and more in the future, it's going to be... I think when Up came out, you had the choice. There was Up in 2D, and then you could see Up in 3D. Right. I feel like more and more in the future, if you want to go see the movie, you're going to see it in 3D. And, like, you know, you don't have the say. Blinky, I don't know where you were looking for Up, but uh, from my point of view in New York City, every theater on the island of Manhattan was only 3D. I, did I not think they had place. like some two D ghettos. I think I think they did have like a few, you know, like maybe like one screen <laughs> in Queens know, here and there. Because the I remember because I was perhaps. looking for it because I thought that I I don't particularly enjoy the three D and I'm a little bit freaked out about how the fact in the future that if I want to go see, I mean, think about like all the movies that we've enjoyed in past years, like three hundred. If it were being started to make today, I almost guarantee you would be made in three D. You know, yeah, and like, I, I don't think I'd enjoy it as much if it were in 3D. I think I'd be weirded up by it. I think it would be a little. It, 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 I mean, it's it's still cheesy to me. 3D seems a little cheesy yeah. to me. And and kind of to the point. I mean, we're looking at a list of upcoming 3D films that will be released over the next uh, well over into the, into the end of two, 2010. There are very few serious black and better words, serious adult films which are going to be released in 3D. I think. Uh, Tron 2 is one example of this. Uh, uh, but the, the vast majority of them are 3D. Vast majority of things are 3D rendered, you know, animation movies that are mostly targeted towards youth and family. Uh, the Final Destination. Oh, did you already say that one? No, I, I didn't say that one. But that, we, haven't, Final, we haven't talked about my favorite uh, upcoming 3D film, which is uh, Step Up 3D, which is right, uh, yeah. another, the, the third. Uh, uh, in the, in the step, up step up to the streets. Step up to the streets. Yeah, but Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland. I guess it's a Disney movie, but it's it's got it's a Tim Burton movie, so it's got to be like, you know, a, a twisted, surreal dream slash nightmare scape, uh, and the Red Queen's Reign of Terror and whatnot. I mean, you, you know what kind of, I don't know if offense is the right word, but uh, apparently Disney is uh, applying some sort of process in re-releasing Beauty and the Beast in 3D. Um, and I mean, I, I understand that like if they re-released it in 2D, less people would go see it because 3D, it makes it a new experience. So you, you have an incentive to pay money for something that you've seen before and you can see on video. But it just seems like taking something which is, agreed to be like a work of art was you know the first animated film to be nominated for best picture and i mean like you wouldn't do that to the godfather you know never say never (laughs) oh god please please do not see the godfather 3d if anyone is listening to this who has a, a potential to stop i'm not asking you to kill anybody but uh, if there's any way short of killing people to stop the Godfather 3D from happening, I'll make you an offer you can't refuse. Don't release the movie. <laughs> um, I, you know, man, I'd agree with you. Uh, I'd agree with you about preferring the 2D to the 3D version if it weren't for two little letters, E O. 
Specifically, <laughs> yes. I was waiting yes. for someone to bring that up. I was waiting. I was waiting, and thank you, Matt. Not only, not that only was. was it one of the the great achievements in cinema of all time, but uh, you know, was was perhaps the greatest 3D film uh, ever, ever exhibited in blurry, you know, <laughs> in all its blurry glory. With the uh, with the like the evil woman clicking her three D fingernails at you and that was not an evil woman that was Angelica Houston. It was I guess it was um, yeah I guess it was Angelica Houston who was like suspended from the ceiling. She was actually like the proto Borg queen. You remember the Borg queen from Star Trek: First Contact? Absolutely. They they ripped it off of Captain EO, and God bless them for doing that. <laughs> well, hey, they, if you if you're gonna steal, only steal from the best. Yeah, you know who was involved in Captain EO? It's, uh, it was directed by Francis Ford Coppola, right? Oh. Written, written by George Lucas. Speaking of The Godfather, okay, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a real pedigree behind that. Um, okay, I'm on the IMDb page now with uh, Captain EO, Angelica Houston as... Uh, What's her supreme, name? The Supreme Leader. And I would not have guessed actors. that. No other actors. I guess they were mostly dancers um, who were cast in this thing. Writers uh, by uh, George Lucas and Rusty Lemorand. I thought it was Lemonade. Oh, Rusty. And you know, look who did the score. Academy Award winner James Horner. Wow. Though I thought they were... I thought that they were um, Michael Jackson songs or the climactic. Well, yeah, but no, but he did the, 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 like during the, the spaceship chases and whatnot, you need, um, Oh, here are quotes from captain EO. Uh, captain EO says that we've reached the homing beacon, sir. And commander bog says, uh, well, so far so good. Captain EO, I must admit, I have a big surprise after the mess you made out of your last mission. But now that you find the, found the beacon, I have a big surprise. I, oh, I guess that means uh, I'm very surprised. But now that you found the beacon, take the map, find the Supreme Leader, and give her the gift. You do have the map, don't you? No problem. No problem, sir. We've got it right here. Then go. And then do you want one of us to pick up one of the other characters? Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm Rather, you're, you're in acting school. You know, we'll help you. You know, this would be this your training. Acting, you know. acting, my boy. This is how it's done. Yes. It was rumored after Michael Jackson's death that it was going to be sort of resurrected at Disney World or Disneyland. But uh, Disney CEO Bob Iger has uh, said it last month that there are currently no plans to bring back Captain EO. There's um, a reason. They, it's cheesy as hell. I mean, like, it's corny like you know my memory of it is very dim but I the reason guess, why we're I so mean, surprised epcot center i mean like it's i don't think it would be out of place yes. if you ever have been to epcot center you'll realize that the whole thing is cheesy and corny no but the reason why we're, we're so surprised all these a-list names are attached to this you know angelica houston uh, uh james horner coppola it's because we had this memory of this thing being so damn corny Am I not? Yeah, uh, I mean, yes, it, it's it's ridiculous. Yes, he was accompanied. He was accompanied on his on his journey by robots that turned into, uh, yeah, robots that turned into musical instruments. But also like an elephant, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, there was a squat blue elephant-ish alien. With a you snout. mean the guy who played the keyboard for Jabba the Hutt's band? 
It looks similar. So I'm looking at the image of this. It looks similar to that. I mean, look, guy, George but... Lucas wrote both of these. I totally believe that Captain EO is like, you know, like it ties into the Star Wars universe through the keyboard player. For <laughs> uh, Bonus points to whoever names the band first. Uh, very close to naming it. I just need to... Um, just need to search the internet uh, a little more. Okay, so that, I mean, that's one. Should we do, just because we're trying to fill time here, uh, favorite favorite 3D movies? I know you're not a fan, but if you had to pick one up out, Matt, would you, does anyone have a, uh, have a favorite? Mine, I think, is probably, is probably uh, Kiss Me, Kate. That was- yeah, I have a very clear, I actually have one that's not only my favorite, but is uh, the winner. That like you're all going to agree that I'm right. Uh, the the Muppets 4D uh, show at uh, MGM <laughs> Studios is fantastic. One of the last things that Jim Henson ever did um, is a very funny uh, sort of like half an hour long 3D movie, uh, you know, starring all the Muppets, uh, and you can still see it at MGM Studios, and it's it's one of the best things you can see at Disney World. It's fantastic. So they are still showing that. I mean, they were last time I checked. If they're, if they're not, I want to hear about it immediately so I can blog about it. That's good to know. So that, that's because got to get back there and check that one. I do remember that thing is very entertaining. Unlike Captain Neo, as I remember being just ridiculously corny with the Michael Jackson, the weird, scary Michael Jackson robot at the end. Yeah. Um, Although they replaced anyway. it with the, the Honey, I blew up the or Honey, I Shrunk the Audience show, which was not an improvement. Uh, unless you really, really like Robert, uh, you know, uh, what's, what's it? Rick Moranis. Rick, Rick Moranis, yeah. Yeah, which is a poor substitute for Michael Jackson. Let's agree on that. <laughs> that's, that's, that's an understatement, to say the least. Uh, no, my favorite 3D movie is pretty simple. I mean, it's Pixar's Up. Um, but I think the, you know, I say that as my favorite 3D movie and that it is the favorite, you know, movie that I've seen that is in 3D. It's not so much that its 3D was the best 3D that I have seen. It's just the best movie that I've seen that has been a 3D movie. And I think that'd be pretty hard pressed actually to find something that tops that in terms of evaluating it as a movie. Uh, Coraline was released in 3D in some areas earlier in the year, and that was actually really well done. The 3D was sort of a seamless piece of it. Uh, it they didn't, didn't stick. They didn't uh, stick anything you in your off. face. No, I mean they did, but when they did it, it was sort of um, it fit. Um, and it actually, I remember walking out of that theater and thinking that I would really love to see the Nightmare Before Christmas in 3D. You're gonna get your and, wish. And you I'm will be able sure to. They're working on it. I'm almost, yeah, almost certainly. A, well, one day that'll happen. But uh, something about that sort of dark aesthetic, I think, works really well. Um, the more garish things might be harder to tolerate. Well, but so I haven't seen. That. Wasn't that a claymation movie? Um, I don't, I don't know if it was actual claymation, but it was sort of done in the style of claymation. Yeah, and that's like so that the characters have a dimensionality, kind of like Pixar two D three D animation, where it's like you really can see it, uh, kind of coming to life like that, right? I don't. You, you, one of the things that worries me about this three D thing is like now they have this technology to take a movie which was not shot in three D and convert it to three D. Yes. Uh, you know, like, I mean, the, the Harry Potter, you know, the 20 minutes of the Harry Potter movie that you could see in 3D, they didn't shoot that in 3D. They just ran it through a computer and made it 3D. Yeah. Um, really? Are we sure about that? 
Yeah, we're, we're sure about that because I saw a little special on how they did it. I mean, they basically have to like go through and like in every shot basically tell the computer what's supposed to be close to the camera. Uh, it's becoming more and more automated, but like it, it, they basically have like a small team of animators go through and like flag, you know, basically paint over Harry in every shot and like, you know, indicate the distance from the camera. But I mean, uh, this is becoming more and more common. I was briefly mentioning before the podcast, there's a bunch of us who are serious Joss Whedon fans, and he's been keeping a pretty low profile uh, recently. But he apparently wrote and directed a like a horror movie, which they're sort of keeping under wraps. We really don't know what it's about, but it's called Cabin in the Woods. I'll get, uh, I mean, I'm going to make a stab out there, and right. I'm going to say that it involves a cabin which right. is in the woods right that when people go there some kind of gory thing happens to them right but I mean, I, I, I was, until they're saved by a teenage girl with karate skills right exactly <laughs> yeah. right yeah but here's the thing apparently the movie is done uh it's been screened People love it. And in fact, people love it so much that the studio has decided not to release it in January as they originally planned, but instead to um, spend eight months converting it to 3D, going through and meticulously converting every shot to a 3D shot and releasing it in January 2011, which kind of, as a Joss Whedon fan, kind of pisses me off. Because like, I don't think I'm going to enjoy it anymore because they spent a year making it fake 3D. That's a huge investment. I, yeah, I, I mean, like, that. it may be more of a sensation. Oh, uh, I blocked you again, Mark. You talk. No, no, I was just saying that that's a lot of money to invest. You know, to invest in upgrading. You know, the the, the financial viability of a movie. Although, you, I, you, know, be, you know, what I think really made that happen is I don't know if you guys were paying attention to the Final Destination. Which was like the Final Destination movies had been illustrating this classic sort of diminishing returns thing. I'm pretty sure that like Final Destination 3 didn't do as well as Final Destination 1, but then they did one in 3D. Exactly the same. It's not like they got bigger stars. They didn't change the plot at all. It's the same thing, but in 3D. Uh, got pretty mediocre ratings and made more money than any of them had ever before. So, I mean, I think it proves that at least for horror, maybe that audience is looking for like a cheap thrill and 3D is a crucial part of the selling point, you know, is a crucial selling point for that. Uh, yeah. Oh, it made a lot more money. Okay. Final destination one, $53 million in the, and this is in theatrical release. This is before we get to DVDs and whatnot, $53 million, which is a great take for a movie like that, which probably didn't cost all that much to make relative to, you know, big Hollywood tentpole blockbuster movies. Uh, Final Destination two down, uh, down like what down six million to uh, forty six point uh, nine million dollars. Final yeah. Destination three back up, but not much higher at fifty four million dollars. So essentially level. And then Final Destination, the Final Destination, which is number four, sixty six almost sixty six million dollars. So yeah, I mean like huge. Uh, Huge thing. I guess it like. Wait, are you I, sure only sixty six? Because I'm. Um, hold on. Just keep keep talking. Okay. Uh, so I guess that like, yeah. But th- this is like this is in the context of a. Um, this is in a in the context. Uh, oh, and the first three were made by New Line before it sort of went under. God, New Line. They had all that Lord of the Rings scratch that they could have. Uh, 
Yeah, they yeah. really didn't capitalize. They, you know, they 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 made a bunch of crap like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I shouldn't say that about one of my favorite movies when I was a kid. But they made yeah. a lot of like low budget schlock, and then they made like three of like you know the all time classics, and then they went out of business. Right. Is that a pretty fair assessment? Yeah, that? they couldn't. They couldn't handle their success. The same things, yeah. or a similar thing, is going to happen to Summit. I think once the uh, once the Twilight series is over, because um, the Summit was was doing a similar thing, except with acquisitions. I mean, they they would buy movies and distribute them, uh, like, and I guess they had a lot of like international distribution deals in place. So. Um, yeah, no, I was about to say about the Final Destination. This is in the context. It was released uh, 82809, so uh, August 28th, and it was um uh it was what? Like uh like in the context of not a lot of not a lot of 3D movies. A year from now or in January 2011 when Cabin in the Woods is re-released or released for the first time but remade as a uh uh remade as a um uh, what's it going to be remade at? Uh, remade as 3D, a... 3D, uh, 3D, 3D, 3D is the word you're looking for. <laughs> yes. The 3D musical. Movie. Uh, yes, no. there, there's going to be a lot more... Uh, the marketplace is going to be a lot more crowded. So it, it seems like maybe not the greatest bet in the world to uh, to hold off on that. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think it shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone that uh, producers have already announced that they are making Saw 7 for next Halloween, and it will be the first Saw in 3D. That, that, never that? Have you seen we the talked about this last week. We talked about this last week. That never ceases to amaze me, like, the audience's appetite for that much torture porn. Seven well, like, look, I don't think they make a lot of money. I feel like you should almost look at the Saw movies as like glorified, like made for TV movies. You know, they're like low budget. They don't make a ton, but like they're just sort of like safe, you know, financially. I, I almost look at them like, you know, the way like, you know, Bob Hope and Big Crosby used to make these road movies back in the day. You know, it's not like a whole lot of care is put into any of them. I hate to diss those because those are all type classics. But what I'm just saying is like, this mindset that like a movie should be something that like people spend like three years working on is maybe a relatively like recent thing that like there's nothing wrong with churning out one movie a year. Woody Allen did that all the time, but uh, yeah, I mean it's mostly the advent of special effects that have made it such a drawn out uh, process, right? Yeah. Okay, let's do. Um, I, I don't know, Matt. I, I think when you look at these margins, you're going to be pretty amazed, right? Like For Saw, Saw 5, one, yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Saw 1, yeah. budget $1.2 million, domestic gross $55. Saw well, two, let me just say, Saw, Saw 1 deserved it. I, I, Saw 1 is great at whatever else you think about the rest of the series. Saw 1 was like a very clever, twisted little film. Uh, and if you ever were sick of your girlfriend uh, making curly eyes at Carrie Elwes and the Princess Bride, you will appreciate it on multiple levels. <laughs> Saw 2, budget 4, uh, budget four domestic gross 87. Saw 3, budget 10, domestic gross 80. Oh, well, that, that one did not... Uh, the, the extra one. Saw 4, budget uh, not known, but probably around 10. Uh, budget sixty uh, domestic gross sixty three saw four budget ten point eight domestic gross uh, fifty fifty six saw six. I mean, now you, you'd be a fool not to make them, you know, at once a year. Right, exactly. Like it's, if it's you're a guaranteed gonna, fifty million dollar payday. 
Yeah, right. If you, why not? And that's the thing about a lot of a lot of genre cinema is that it's um, that it's it's uh, it's hard to go wrong because you. Um, uh, it's hard to go wrong because the the payday is so huge. Not relative to you know a two hundred million dollar movie like what Star Trek, but relative to what it costs to make that. They're so cheap. The um, they're so cheap to make. Horror I, movies, I guess, you know? but I mean, obviously, like the movie business is never a safe bet. And like, as much as it looks like a low budget horror movie, is like you know, oh, it's a license to print money. Uh, Drag me to hell was a thirty million dollar budget and barely limped to like forty two million dollars, which maybe covers its advertising costs. And that was a great movie by like a director that no, you know, all the no way, no, 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 no way does that cover its advertising costs because that's um. Uh, because that there were posters for that thing fucking everywhere. But oh, right. God, well, I just. But I mean, like that, that, our, that was a disappointment, and like community. it's it's hard to even say exactly what. And of course, um, more recently, you could look at uh, Jennifer's body. Right. Is, yeah. Which although was, some again, people would say that to... that wasn't really a horror movie, and that was sort of its downfall. That like it it was kind of a horror movie, and it didn't really grab the horror audiences in the way that you yeah. you know would. Well, here's the thing. Like I um. Look, I watched the YouTube video of uh, Megan Fox uh, making out with Amanda Seyfried, and I was satisfied that I had seen everything I was interested in in that movie. And that was pretty much all you were going to see. Drag, you, know, you know, it dragged me to hell made DNA. another, made another uh, $40 million in foreign, foreign box office. So That's interesting. Yeah. People like curses overseas. Very well. Look, very often we hear the domestic gross, and you think, "Well, God, the the um, that's it." But no. yeah, the the twelve million the twelve million dollar budget didn't even cover the P and A, which was your point. But like, uh, uh, which stands for prints and advertising. But the um, you know, there's there's the the uh, foreign gross. There's this insatiable foreign appetite for American movies, and then you know, then it comes out on on DVD. The the DVD business, I guess, is drying up. Now that we all are watching movies on, uh, now that we're all watching movies on, I, I don't know the Hulu's and the uh, the Netflixes and whatnot. Hmm. Yeah, isn't little bit of horror is interesting. Here's the thing about Jennifer's body is that like I understand all the reasons why you know people say it didn't do well, but like this is like. How many screenwriters can you name? I mean, you're probably a bad example because you're very in the business, but like Diablo Cody wins an Academy Award for Best Screenwriter. This is her second screenplay to be produced. You would expect that people would be more excited about, I mean, like, you know, Charlie Kaufman, you know, his second movie, everyone was dying to see that. Yeah, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck's second movie. Oh, wait, no, wait, what? Right. Yeah. One day they're going to get around to it. <laughs> Matt Damon and yeah. Ben Affleck are like the Sylvester Stallone of their day, which is like they became famous as brilliant writers and then never wrote again. So, well, Sylvester Stallone, yeah, that's the thing that people forget about Stallone is that he was a really good writer. Like that first I Rocky will. movie. Okay, yeah. I mean, yeah. That first Rocky movie was a good little movie, you know? Like that, that I was guess, a good although, like, I, I, I guess I just hesitate to say that like Rocky is brilliantly written. You know, I mean, I think it's well written and it's brilliant in other ways, but like, I don't think that the screenplay is. I don't know. I just, you don't, I, you I, I, I guess, you I, I want to find has- a way. I want to find a way to squirm out of the acknowledgement that Sylvester Stallone is a great writer. 
Yo, yo, Linky, you don't think the movie no, had no, no, I, dialogue? I don't think I know. I don't think that, no, no, I don't think that he's necessarily a great writer, but I think he wrote a great script. I mean, he wrote one great script, at least. Right? Well, here's, here's how great that script is. When was that movie made? Like, 1976, right? Five? 19, no? Okay, so we're talking, you know, 30, 35 years ago. Yeah, I was I was at the Philadelphia Museum of Art yesterday and saw no less than fifty people run up the stairs and throw their arms in the air. Yeah, like, that's, that, that, that is I mean, thirty five years later. That is such a cultural phenomenon that busloads of tourists stop at the museum just to run up the stairs. And I've done that myself too. But you know, that's yeah. certainly a testament to the staying power of the film. Is that necessarily part and parcel with the writing, though? I mean, that particular sequence that we're looking at, it was very much a function of, you know, the, the cinematography of it and more, even more than that, the music, obviously, for the reasons why that particular right. scene... And I, I wouldn't be surprised if, like, that particular moment wasn't even scripted, per se. You like, I don't know if it's part of the script. Well, that I moment mean, may not have been scripted, but we cared about that character. We were so yeah, emotionally no, right. invested in the movie at that point that that stuck with us. You know, yeah, yeah, you're right. Like, you know, it's an all time classic and that like, you know, credit where credit is due. He knocked the ball out of the park with that one. Yeah, with um, that, with he, that one. he became the third person ever to be nominated as best actor and best screenwriter in the same year. After who was it? It was Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. For the Great Dictator. The great Dictator and and, and oh and Orson Welles, yeah. So there you go. Probably for Citizen Kane, right? He probably versus I don't know what else unless the magnificent Ambersons, but I doubt that. Didn't he write the Transformers cartoon movie too? Yes, I believe he did write the Transformers animated film. <laughs> Wait, he wrote it or he appears in it? He appears in it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, oh, sorry. Sorry. Oh, god, I was I was like behind the curve on the joke. Sorry. Yeah, it's okay. sorry. I don't mind explaining it to you. Well, if you out there in podcast land want to uh, chew our ear off about 3D movies, I mean, what is your favorite? Who has seen Captain EO? Who's seen the Muppets 4D? Oh, or do you remember there was a Terminator one, too, a Terminator attraction that was like... Terminator oh, yeah, yeah, no, directed by James Cameron. Yeah, right. And, exactly. and that should tell you something, the fact that like he directed a theme park attraction basically just because he wanted to play around with 3D. Yeah. Well, the guy, I mean, he's always been on that edge. Like, uh, the, yeah. the Abyss, right, was like that, where it was just... He doesn't want to make a movie unless he can use some new toys, with the exception of being True Lies, which he just made for fun. Also to make a crap load of money as well. Don't yes, forget that. he doesn't mind. He's pretty good at that. Um, so, uh, yes, if you want to chew our ear off about that, about uh, low-budget horror, about, you know, domestic grosses or the P&A budget of American movies, about the, the upcoming Tron, uh, about Beauty and the Beast, about Step Up 3D, which is, it will soon become our, uh, soon become our favorite movie. Uh, you know what to do. You can leave a comment on the uh, show notes for the episode. You can use the contact form on the site. You can email us at podcast at overthinkingit.com, or you can call the voicemail, which is 20EatLaw, That's 203-285-6401. One more time, 203-285-6401. 
zero one. And until we teach Pete how to use Skype, you can get us uh, on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, the site where we subject popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't Yeah, we should do this podcast in 3D next week, guys. 3D audio. And for, and in stereo? Four, Is that what you mean? People, I don't know. <laughs> no, that would take too much and, bandwidth. Uh,